thought I was going to do you a mischief then because Eddie was wanted to shake my hand, but I had my watch taken off. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought I was going to crush, crush your hand with my watch. Um, Don Younes was speaking at our church a couple of weeks ago and uh, he dropped his watch. He put it on the thing next to him and uh, he dropped his watch and picked it up and he thought he must have broken it because it didn't say the time he expected to see. So I took him my watch to, uh, so he could keep track. And as he, um, as he was starting to gather himself again, I said to him, it's got the date on it as well, you know, Don. Uh, because, uh, <laughs> but I think it broke the ice for him because he hasn't spoken to Bethel for a while. Yeah. Let me just put this over here. Get me papers out. It's good to be with you this morning. Bring the greetings of the folk of Bethel. And some of you are the folk of Bethel, so that's great. That's absolutely brilliant. Um, but I bring the greetings of the folk of Bethel. We're still looking for a pastor and uh, we're still trusting that the Lord is going to provide the man of his choosing hopefully before too long um, we feel the need for someone to to lead us in the things of God and we're jealous that you've got Pastor Eddie here looking after you and uh, we'd love to have a Pastor Eddie looking after us as well so if the Lord gives you a nudge pray for us um, that uh, we'd, we'd find the right man in God's time this passage that uh, Eddie read to us earlier on, just a few minutes ago, um, it's, a, it's a wonderful passage. And it's a, a special thing in some ways because, um, I don't know whether you remember in, uh, in the Old Testament when, uh, when Jacob was just about to die and he gathered all his sons together, didn't he? And he spoke to them. It was a, a special time. The words that he was going to share with his, his sons at, at that time were special words. They were important words. They carried weight. And as we read together, it was obvious that Paul is saying, listen, my time has come, Timothy. Uh, yeah, I want you to come and, and see me as soon as you can, if that's possible. But I realise my time is almost at an end. And this, as far as Paul knew, would probably be the last time he'd have an opportunity to give instructions to his protege, to his beloved son, Timothy. And uh, so we need to, to, to take note of what he said. Because in the goodness of God, God has kept this word for us. Because it applies to us as well. Who knows, but we might be, not only in our last days, but in the last days. And so it's important that we follow the instructions that God has given so that we might do his work effectively. Sue used to call them the Twin Set and Pearls Brigade. Um, now, ladies of a certain age and gentlemen of a certain age will know what I mean by the Twin Set and Pearl Brigade. Uh, I think Sue was referring to, to, to some ladies from afar off who, every time you saw them on a screen, um, their hair was immaculately quaffed, their, um, their clothes were very elegant but it was always a twin set a matching uh, top and cardigan and a beautiful string of pearls as well to, just to set it all off ladies it wasn't only the ladies that had the twin set of pearls i can remember as a teenager in the 1970s getting a twin set a tank top a sleeveless jumper with a matching cardigan in the in the wackiest designs and colors uh, and we thought they were great because the, the two things went together that was the way they were supposed to be well, I don't want to be irreverent in any way, shape or form this morning. But Paul here is talking. He comes to the conclusion, and it'll be a little while before we get to this conclusion, so don't worry. But he comes to the conclusion 
that God has got for him the second part of the Christian's twin set. And if you followed the reading through before, you'll see that Paul talks about there being a crown of righteousness that's laid up for him. And that's the second part of the twin set. The first part Paul has already got. That's the robe of righteousness which Christ has given him. So as I say, I don't want to be irreverent in any way, but uh, it, it was a striking similarity that I saw when um, Sue came off, uh, off a, a teaching session a little while ago and said, I said, but the Twin Set and Pearls Brigade's there. She said, uh, no, we've got some new ladies in charge now. They're a bit more with it. They've got sort of shortened trousers and, and fancy T-shirts. The robe of righteousness that we've been given as we are saved. Isaiah spoke about this in his uh, prophecy in 61 and, uh, and, and verse 10. He says these words, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and he's arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. God has adorned me, says Isaiah, in a robe of righteousness. Why did he need to do that? Of course, the answer is, is simple. Because we have no righteousness of our own. Uh, Isaiah spoke of that. And Paul, when he was writing to the church at Ephesus, he picks up the same sort of um, idea. When he says, stand firm with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. The Christian's armour that Paul told the Ephesians to put on fully. And here in 2 Timothy in chapter 4 and verse 8, he speaks about the future crown that will go with it. The robe of righteousness is ours because of what is known as the great exchange. The fact that Jesus took all of our sin and he exchanged it for his righteousness. The Apostle Peter describes in his letter, in his first letter, he says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God. And Paul tells us over and over and over in his letter to the Romans that before Jesus lived and died and rose again, we find that the faith of those who believed was credited to them as if it was righteousness. They believed God and God said, that'll do for me for righteousness. He speaks about Abraham in particular, singled out as somebody whose faith was credited to him by God as being the same as righteousness. And the writer to the Hebrews talks about the exploits of those who believe God and did great things for him. He says they did these things by faith. And their faith was credited to them as righteousness. And the same writer, the writer to the Hebrews says, without faith it's impossible to please God. Uh, it's, a, it's a striking thing in these days in which we live. Um, the, the people think that they can please God by keeping rules, by doing actions, or by abstaining from things. And in God's word, it, it's made absolutely clear to us that the only way that we can please God is by faith. That we can never um, keep enough rules. He's given us the Ten Commandments and we know we break them all. 
He's given us the way that we should live and we can't keep to it. We could never give enough. We could never do enough uh, to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, says the writer to the Hebrews. Because anybody who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Faith and righteousness, in Bible terms, almost equate to the same thing. Paul, again, writing to the church of Philippi, said these words. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now I've gone on about righteousness a little bit there, but it's important To be able to stand in the presence of a holy God, we need to be clothed in righteousness. And as Paul put it, we haven't got any righteousness of our own. There's a a great old hymn, um, Oh, How the Grace of God Amazes Me. I think we're singing it at Bethel tonight. Uh, And there's a verse in it which says, Not for my righteousness, for I have none. But for his mercy's sake, Jesus God's Son suffered on Calvary, Crucified with thieves was he. Great was his grace to me, his wayward one. Not for my righteousness, I have none. Without a robe of righteousness, we cannot be saved. And so as Paul tells us, as Isaiah tells us, as the Bible uh, clearly makes it known to us, we need the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ to be able to stand before God. He takes our filthy rags. And he replaces them with his robe of righteousness. We had the prodigal son. At, uh, we didn't have the prodigal son himself. I mean, that was only a story that Jesus told. But uh, we, somebody was telling the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, and he gave the picture of this boy who'd been uh, working in a pig sty. Uh, and how he run out of all his money. He probably uh, was very smelly and very unkempt and all the rest of it. Uh, and when he came to his father... After he came to his senses, he came home to his father and he was trying to get the words out. Father, I have sinned uh, against heaven and before you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he could get those words out, his father's saying, get the robe, get the sandals, get the ring, kill, kill the fatted calf. And it's the same picture when a, a person comes to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. He says, get the robe, put it on him. So that he can stand, so that she can stand before God. As a famous Irish comedian said, there's more, there's more. Paul tells not just of a robe of righteousness, but a crown of righteousness that's been laid up for him. It's been set aside for him. Now, it's only last month, isn't it, that we had the coronation of King Charles. No matter what your view about the coronation, it was certainly a spectacle. And the crowns that were worn by Charles and Camilla, um, they seemed to to fit reasonably well. There were a couple of precarious moments when it seemed to balance on the top. But they'd been taken out of the Tower of London months before the ceremony. And they'd been made to fit Charles and Camilla's head perfectly. So they were, and it's difficult to do with a crown that's made of, of metal and, and what have you. Um, so they were very delicately altered in their shape. 
And I think one of the crowns, they had to enlarge uh, and, and some of the old queen's diamonds were used to make up um, the, the, the gaps that they put into the crown to make it bigger. The robe of righteousness that Jesus has given us is on us. The crown of righteousness that he's prepared for us will fit perfectly. It's been specifically made for you and for me. Paul said, there's a crown of righteousness which is being laid up for me, set aside for me, specially prepared for me. And on that great day, he would receive it. Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God. Uh, and Paul picks up uh, the, the, the language of the kingdom, if you like, at the beginning of our reading. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. And then he goes on to say what he's charging him with. The kingdom of God is, uh, has a king. But the strange thing is in the kingdom of God that all of the citizens have crowns. Remember when Jesus preached, uh, much of his preaching was about the coming of the kingdom of God. He preached the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it was a description of what the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of heaven was like. Uh, what characteristics the citizens of the kingdom of heaven would display. What effect they were to have in the world. Uh, and, and he started off with the Beatitudes, which tells us what the citizens of the kingdom are to be like. And it wasn't what you're expecting because the ones who are blessed or described as blessed by Jesus aren't the rich and the powerful and the successful and the strong, but rather the poor and the mournful and the meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're the merciful and those who are pure in heart. They're the peacemakers and the persecuted. And those eight sayings of Jesus describe what the kingdom citizens look like. What these people who are going to one day receive a crown of righteousness. What they look like. And then Jesus tells us what the citizens of the kingdom will do. You're to be salt and you're to be light in the world in which you live. Because the world is a dirty place. And salt was something which would keep and preserve things, wouldn't it, in, in, in old Bible times. You're to be the salt of the earth. You're to bring flavour. You're to preserve. You're to be the light of the world because it's a dark place. And it needs to have the light of God shone in. This is what the kingdom citizens, those who are going to one day wear a crown of righteousness, this is what they're to do. And then he said, uh, Jesus said, this is how the kingdom citizens are supposed to live. They're to be obedient to the heart of God's law and not just to the word of God's law. So those who expect to receive one day a crown um, uh, have to, to not only do what the Pharisees tried to do and keep to the letter of the law, but they need to keep to the heart of it. So Jesus talked about um, murder uh, and he said, you heard it said that you, know, you shouldn't murder, but I say to you, anybody who's hated his brother is guilty of the same. And then Jesus reminded us how citizens of the kingdom should pray as the disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. So what sort of things are we to pray for as believers? What, what sort of things are, are the citizens who will one day wear the crown to, to bring before God? 
We remember that God is holy and mighty. So that's where our treasure should be. Jesus goes on to teach. And it's like a parallel to the Lord's Prayer. Uh, our Father who art in heaven. And then he says, your treasure should be in heavenly places. God is your loving heavenly Father. And he'll provide your daily bread. So don't be anxious about food or, or, or clothes. We pray for forgiveness. And against temptation. And then we commit to, to forgiving others. As they have sinned against us. This is how the kingdom citizens are to live. And when we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has more lessons to teach. He wants us to be wise in the way that we live. And so we finally get to Paul, writing his last words to Timothy. And he invokes the kingdom again. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, I am going to tell you what to do, Timothy. And there are instructions here for all believers. First thing that we have to do. First thing that he told Timothy to do. Preach the word. We are to fulfill the great commission. Go into all the world, the Lord Jesus Christ said. And, and preach the gospel to them. Uh, the word that is used here in, in verse 2 of chapter 4. Preach the word. It literally means be heralds. Heralds, not triumph heralds. Those of you who remember the, uh, the great old car. I always wanted a triumph herald uh, when I was a, a young lad. Never got one. But uh, triumph heralds, no, not that sort of herald. A herald is somebody who takes a message. And again, we saw them around the time of the coronation. We saw them when the queen died. We saw them when uh, the, the, the king was, was announced to everybody. They go to the far-flung parts of the, the nation. And they'd stand in a public place, place and they'd give a message which had been written for them. We don't see many of them around. They stand out when they uh, do appear. They don't write the message. They simply carry it to a place and pass the message on to those who need to hear. That's what Paul is telling Timothy to do. That's what Paul is telling us in, in, in God's word that we should do. And that should give us a great deal of confidence. He describes it as preaching the word be, being heralds, not as theologians. Paul's not saying, when you've worked out all of the intricacies of the word of God, and you feel as though you could pass your A-level or your PhD in the Bible, then go out and tell people. Paul's not saying that. Otherwise, none of us would be able to do it. Paul just says to Timothy, herald the gospel. The message has already been laid out for you. Just take it and share it. We've been uh, looking through the book of Acts, <coughs> excuse me, at Bethel on a Sunday night. And we've seen how from uh, a small number of people gathered together in Jerusalem, uh, God sent persecution. It was after the stoning of Stephen when the church was scattered. Uh, and it started to fulfill that gospel uh, need to go to the ends of the earth. And what does it say? Those who were scattered, the, the ordinary Christians who used to be in Jerusalem, who heard about everything that was going on, maybe some had seen it with their own eyes. Maybe they'd been there on the day of Pentecost and they'd, they, they'd seen what was going on. They'd heard uh, the apostles speaking to them in their own language. And they were scattered now. It says they were scattered and they went about preaching the word. 
I, I can't believe that all the Christians who were there in the early days of, of gospel times were qualified theologians. They were probably just rough and ready people like you and me who had a message to take to the nations. Who had a message to take starting with themselves, maybe in their own homes, to their friends. But it seems to me that wherever they went, they gossiped the gospel. The Lord Jesus said that before the end days come, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the, word, the end will come. The, the word that was used in Acts about the people preaching the word is a different word than the one we've got here in 2 Timothy. As I said, the one in 2 Timothy is, is herald the word, take the message. The, the, the one that was given in Acts was evangelize. Just take the good news out with you. And that's what they did. It's the job of believers to be ready with the gospel. Peter, uh, again in his epistle, reminds us of this. He says, in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I'll say that again because it's a, quite a long sentence, isn't it? Always being prepared to make a defence to anybody who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. Always be ready. This isn't rocket science. I think our generation, or maybe it's just me, I'm, I'm the older generation now, aren't I? <laughs> Suddenly, one day you realise that you're not the young generation anymore. But maybe our generation, those who come later, We've lost the art of gossiping the gospel. We've lost the art of looking for an opportunity and taking an opportunity as it comes along. That's what Matthew and, and Jono and, and um, uh, Jamie and Elias are going to be doing on the beach in, in Bournemouth. They're going to be looking for any opening that they have where they can get the gospel in. But that's what we're to do in our lives day to day. Always be ready to make a defence to anybody who asks you. So the first thing, says uh, Paul to Timothy, preach the word, herald the gospel, just take the message, don't try and be fancy, just take the message and leave the rest of the Spirit of God. Second thing, Timothy, how, how are you to do it? Uh, and, and again, Paul gives clear instructions. Now I was a boy scout and the motto was be prepared. Uh, it was simple and so was the meaning. Be ready for anything. So the scouts trained us in first aid. Uh, it trained us in housework, uh, cooking, construction of various types, uh, craftsmanship, uh, being out in the wild. I, I, when I was about 16, I could have found myself in the middle of nowhere, known how to make myself a shelter, find some water, start a fire and cook me dinner. I don't think I could probably do it now just as well. But the, the motto is simple, be prepared. And, and Paul says the same thing to here. Preach the word, verse 2 Timothy. 
uh, be ready in season and out of season always be ready it's the message that peter brought us uh, which i mentioned just a little bit earlier always be ready timothy the usefulness that comes with the readiness to evangelize is always needed by the christian not just um one day the the scoutmaster would say to me oh you never know when this might come in handy as he was teaching us the difference between a a round turn and two half hitches and a bowline knot uh, you never know when that's going to come in handy and I must admit some of those knots have come in very handy over the years so if I want to shorten a piece of rope yeah, I could just about remember how to do it but for the Christian we're always to be ready with the gospel to minister the gospel uh, and the, the apostle Peter's already said that citizens of the kingdom those who are going to one day uh, have a crown of righteousness placed on their heads we're always to be ready to give that answer so be prepared be ready expect an opportunity to come your way that's what citizens do and that means that we equip ourselves with what we can and what we can and what we have is the word of god and isn't it strange how maybe you found in your own life that sometimes we've been reading a passage of scripture in the word of god maybe in the morning or or with our brothers and sisters in church or whatever and then a couple of days later Somebody comes along to us and, ah, that word comes straight back to our minds. We realise that all scripture, as Paul says to Timothy as well, is breathed out by God and it's profitable. It's good, it's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And that's what uh, Paul tells Timothy to do here. So he says... Always be ready, Timothy. That's what you're to do. And the content of what Timothy was, uh, was to say and what we're to say um, it is laid out here by Paul as well. Sue is a Bible study fellowship ladies teaching leader. Um, I'm not sure whether anybody here goes to, to BSF. It's a great discipline. Uh, last year, not the one that's just finished, but the previous one, they, uh, they went through Matthew's Gospel. And then this year... Uh, they, the studies have been called Kingdom Divided. Anybody from BSF? Nobody here from BSF. Kingdom Divided. They went through most of the Old Testament all in one year. It really was a whistle-stop tour. And they traced the Old Testament history of the nation after Solomon's failures. It covered 15 books of the Old Testament, dozens of kings. Some of those books were pretty big, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and that sort of thing. And it covered the, uh, the heartbreaking exile of God's people in Babylon. And it covers some of the lesser known books of the Bible. Obadiah, Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk and Lamentations. And every week I got a preview of what's coming. Because Sue has to put this talk on, on a, a website for some ladies in Europe who speak English but haven't got a teaching leader. So I video the message for online. And every week... There is a reminder of the wonder of the scriptures. You said Malachi, you're going through Malachi at the moment, uh, and that's full of absolute gems, isn't it? What about um, Habakkuk? Though the fig tree does not bud, and though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, if this disaster takes place, says the writer, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. We need to know the word of God. 
We need to immerse ourselves in the word of God. We need to be confident, not necessarily that you can just take somebody to a page, although that's good if you remember the reference to the scriptures, but we need to remember the scriptures. We need to write God's word in our hearts so that when we do have an opportunity and when we do have that readiness in our, in our soul that we are going to meet somebody today who needs to hear the gospel, that we've got the gospel to give them. He tells us what to do. Reprove, he says, that's admonish or correct. Rebuke, rebuke them, that's chiding or reprimanding the people. Exhort them, urge them, encounter them, spare them on. That's what the gospel does. He was to do it patiently, whether it was a good time or a bad time, in season or out of season. He was to do it sensitively, but he was to do it urgently, says Paul. Preach the word, be ready, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, complete patience and teaching. Why is he to do it that way? Because the time is coming, says Paul, when people won't be bothered about the gospel. Haven't those days come upon us? When all we want to hear, by and large, in the world in which we live, is somebody who'll tell us that they agree with what we think. We get people telling us that we're worth it. Yet... People telling us that you're great. Uh, and, and if we don't receive this positive um, feeling from people and from things, then we feel as though there's something wrong. We preach the gospel. We exhort people because the day is coming when people won't be concerned about the gospel. Because what's the starting point of the gospel? We are sinners. And we need a saviour. And that's not the message that people want to hear in these days. The gospel starts by telling people they are sinners and facing God's righteous judgment. And it finishes with telling them that the love of God is so great. That the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth to die in our place. That our sins might be forgiven. This is what you to do, Timothy. This is how you to do it. And finally, Timothy, why should you bother? And we finally got there. Because there's a crown of righteousness, Timothy. And it's waiting not only for me, not only for Paul. We think of Paul as this uh, great guy who, could, who did many things. This amazing theologian. Uh, this, this man who travelled probably around the equivalent of going around the world about three or four times on his missionary journeys. Who went from place to place. Who suffered hardship. We think of him as being something special. But Paul says, listen, this crown of righteousness that's laid up for me, it's also laid up for everybody who looks forward to his appearing for every Christian. This was the Stephanos crown. There are two types of crown spoken about in the scriptures. There's Stephanos, which is the, um, the victor's crown. The crown that's given to the winner of the race. The one who's being the victor in the fight. And then it's the diadem crown, the di diadema, I think it's called, which is the kingly crown, which only kings can wear. Why should I bother? Because there's a crown of righteousness that's to be laid, that, that is laid up for me. Paul um, went through incredible hardships as he took the gospel from place to place. Five times he received at the hands of the Jews the 39 lashes 
He was often near death. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. A night and a day he was adrift in the sea. On frequent journeys. In danger from rivers. In danger from robbers. In danger from my own people. In danger from Gentiles. In danger in the city. In danger in the wilderness. In danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. Toil. Hardship. Many sleepless nights. Hunger. Thirst. Often without food. Cold and exposed. And apart from all the other things. There's the daily pressure on him of being uh, anxious about all the churches. This was Paul's CV. And yet he was able to say, I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. I have kept the faith. And there is a crown of righteousness, which is going to put all of those things that I've been through into perspective and make them all seem worthwhile. Because the crown of righteousness comes at a cost. Jesus said, if we are to follow him, we, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. Jesus said that we will be hated for his name's sake, Matthew 10, 22. But then he says that the one who endures to the end will be saved. He promised that in this world you will have trouble. But he said, take heart, I've overcome the world. The Christian life demands fighting a good fight. And it's a race. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It demands persevering in the race to the end. It demands giving it everything. The prize is given for, for finishing the race. Not for setting a world record. It's not a competition. We don't leave the, the work of God to each other because Eddie's better at, us than, uh, at it than we are. No, it's about finishing the race. race about persevering to the end. It's about keeping the faith. Remember the parable that Jesus told about the, the stewards? And uh, one steward was so frightened of his master that he, he took what he'd been given, he just hid it in the ground. He didn't do anything with it. And when the master came back, he said, what have you done? He should have just given it to one of the others who would have made something out of it. And we've been entrusted as stewards of the gospel. And we need to take it. And we need to do something with it. Because not us, but the gospel will bear its own fruit. Not dependent on how uh, ingenious the speaker is or how fluent or how lucid they are. But on the power of the Holy Spirit who takes the gospel and applies it to people's lives. Are you looking forward to the crown of righteousness? And there are three things. We need to be heralds. Preach the gospel. Don't pretend that you can't share the message that you've been given. Just take it and share it and let God use it to do his work. We need to be prepared, always ready uh, to, to, to share uh, with others who need to hear the message of the gospel. And we need to be faithful and persevere to the end. For one day we will receive that crown of righteousness that has been set aside for us. And we'll hear the words of our Father. Well done. Good and faithful servant, enter in. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we have looked at it this morning, uh, that you would uh, use it to encourage our lives. Use it, Father, to correct our behaviour. Use it to enable us to do those things that you have asked us to do. We pray that while we have breath, we might be those who are ready to take out every opportunity to share the gospel, no matter what the cost, knowing that one day we will receive that
crown of righteousness, to go with the robe we've already been given. And on that day we will be with you forevermore. Father, we thank you for these things and we pray that you would help them, help us in them. For Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to uh, sing together again. Um, hymn number 126, Facing a Task Unfinished. I'll hand over to Eddie.